Hello, Church of the Beloved. My name is Abe. I am the uh, pastor for our Wicker Park campus, and I'm so glad that you've come to join us today uh, as part of worship. Now, if this is your first time joining us, I, I want to give a little bit of an explanation about our sermon series, the title for it, which is The Gospel According to Exodus. And I want to point out that this particular story, well, actually, this entire book, the Bible, it is God's story of redemption for his chosen ones. From, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis and Exodus through to the Revelation. It's all pointing to salvation by, uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by his grace alone. I also wanted to provide a little bit of context for those who are joining in as to why we decided to go to Exodus and preach on the gospel according to Exodus. Now, part of our vision as a church as the Church of the Beloved, is to help our beloved folks get uh, an idea and discover their mission in their life, what God intends for them. And this story of the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt, it's a story not only of Moses' mission, not only of the Hebrews' mission, but of God's mission, God's design, God's ultimate intent for each of them, and therefore each of us, and how he has a design for it from the very beginning. Now, I want to ask, before we dive into today's passage that was just read, I want to, will you pray with me? I want to consecrate this time to God, this message to God. So will you pray? Precious Father, you are the I am. You are Lord. You're the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. You're Lord of all, and I, and I ask you now to make this a holy time, to use my words for your glory to edify your beloved children through this message that we share now. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, today we're in week four of this Exodus series. We're going to be carrying this on through uh, until Christmas time. And I was given the choice to focus really on anything in chapter four. And as I was reading through and pondering it and studying it, I came across verses 24 to 26, and the first thing I thought was, this is a weird passage, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, so I'm not going to preach on that one. I'm just going to skip it. Because it's, it's one of those places in the Bible, when you read it, where you're, you're like, what the? I don't understand. So I was going to skip it, but then I realized it is odd, and maybe it might be beneficial for us to take a moment to exegete, or in other words, to take the time to fully understand this passage within its initial context, and then talk about what it might actually mean, ultimately, for all of us, including myself. Now, before we spend time on these uh, two verses that were so eloquently read by Margaret, thank you very much, Margaret, for reading that for us, I want to make a mention to all our small group leaders and community group leaders who are following along in this gospel according to Exodus series. Uh, you don't have to focus on these verses as part of your small group discussions or community group discussions. Actually, you might be better off focusing on like the middle of chapter three through the middle of chapter four. You see, there Moses is asking a whole bunch of questions. He's, he's showing that he totally feels incapable of, of following uh, God's task. Uh, he, he doesn't, and he basically says, I don't want to do it, God. Uh, he doesn't feel like he can. God points out that he's really not asking him to do it. He's, 
And it's not about what Moses can do anyway. It's all about what God can do. Pastor Bryant last week, he alluded to it, um, and he spoke to how God uses and transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary. And I love an example. In chapter 4, verse 17, the exchange between Moses and God is starting to come to an end. And then there's this really odd statement where God goes, hey, by the way, Moses, don't forget your staff. It, and, and we see the simple shepherd's staff, the same simple ordinary staff suddenly being transformed into the staff of God in verse 20. So my recommendation for our small group and community group leaders uh, at Beloved is to focus on God's mission for you in these past years and, and how we oftentimes put limits on our limitless God, how God uses the simple to become significant. But turning to today's passage, I'm going to spend about t- maybe 20 minutes to look at this very confusing passage, and I want to provide some uh, possible explanations, possible different translations by taking in consideration the original context, the, what the original readers might have understood. Now, regardless of these different possible translations uh, for these verses that we're about to go through, the truth of what it means for us today is going to be exactly the same. The, the purpose of this story does not change because I have questions about it. They're, they, I think, are interesting questions, and I'm going to ask them, but, but they don't change the impact of what God intends this passage to have on each of us listening. So having said that, let's go ahead and consider some of the questions that I think this passage elicits or or prompts. And the first question is this. Who is him? I'm going to read verse 24 really quickly. It says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So, The original Hebrew, if you read that, it doesn't tell us who him is. Later on in verse 25, translators of the original Hebrew, they insert Moses' name uh, when it says this, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. The original Hebrew doesn't say Moses' name. It says Zipporah touched his feet with. And if you're following along in, in, in the Bible, you'll see for some of you, there's a footnote there that actually points to this. Moses' name was never written. It says his. But I get, I get why the original translators would assume that the, that the him in this verse is Moses, because everything leading up to this point has been about Moses. It's, it's, it's the story of how Moses has been called by God to to bring his beloved children out of Egypt. It's about Moses' mission. So it makes sense. Most scholars agree. The hymn must refer to uh, Moses. It's got to be him. But there are a few. There are a few who have read this, looked at the context, and believe that the hymn is Gershom, Moses' eldest son. And I want to read to you from verse 22. Verse 22, it says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So so here's God. He's foreshadowing uh, the the final plague that's going to fall on Egypt, on those who are not marked for rescue. It will only be the consecrated people of God who are marked by blood 
that will escape this plague. It will only be the, the circumcised. It will only be the ones that bear the signs of the covenant between God and his chosen people. It will only be the ones who, who paint blood on the doorposts, the blood of sacrifice. Now here's Moses' son. And, and I'm not sure whether it's Moses' elder son, who's Gershom, or his younger son, Eliezer. But I'm going to make an assumption for a moment that it is Gershom, Moses' firstborn Son, Moses' son is not circumcised. He's not among the covenant people of God. And therefore, this firstborn son is at risk of death. There's a pastor, his name is Vodi Bakum. He's uh, formerly a pastor in Texas. Now he is the dean of a seminary uh, at the African Christian University in Zambia. And he preached on this once, and I listened to his message, and, and he preached that this passage says that the death of the firstborn will pass over Israel, God's covenant people. Gershom is Moses' firstborn son who is not circumcised. He's not part of the covenant people. So, so it means that he's not identified with the people of God. So he's not to be counted among the covenant people of God, and therefore he will be killed along with Pharaoh's son. So if we consider the context, and just as a reminder, the original writings do not have chapter and verse numbers. It's just one story. It was included later for our convenience. So, so in verse 22 and 23, God warns of the death of Egypt's firstborn sons because Pharaoh is refusing to honor God and honor God's firstborn son. And we come to verse 24, and God is now seeking to put him to death. Could it be? Could it be that he's putting, wanting to seek to put Gershom, not Moses, to death because Moses has not honored the covenant between God and the Hebrews? And Gershom is Moses' firstborn son. Because you look, from the middle of chapter 3, going through to chapter 4, Moses has been questioning and doubting and working hard against God. He's trying to ignore what God is telling him to do. And yet God shows him nothing but grace. He says, I got you. Moses responds with, yeah, but, but yet God continues to show nothing but grace, but mercy. And then God seeks to kill Moses. I don't know. Who, who is him? Who is this passage speaking about? Who, who is God seeking to put to death? And as I mentioned, scholars throughout the generations understand that the hymn is most likely Moses. Moses' disobedience against God by, by not bringing his son into the covenant relationship with God, it's resulting in God seeking to kill him. I, I, I can see that. Or maybe it could be Gershom, the firstborn who has not been consecrated with blood and will therefore not escape that last plague that verses 22 and 23 are pointing to. I don't know. I, I honestly know the Bible doesn't say either way, and the word is intentionally vague on this point, at least to those who are reading it now. So I don't know. It could be Moses, might be Gershom. As I said, though, thankfully, it doesn't change the relevance of this passage that we're going to speak on in just a moment. Here's my, here's my second question that came up when I was reading through those three verses. It's this. Why wasn't Gershom circumcised in the first place? You see, uh, back in the day, 
circumcision was not just a Jewish religious rite. Um, ancient Egyptian culture included the practice as well, uh, to some extent. That culture, most historians understand it, did it more out of a desire for cleanliness than out of religiosity, but they still practiced circumcision. They also did it at a different time. They did it when the boys were about to enter into puberty, which, thinking about it now, it just makes me highly uncomfortable. But regardless, Moses' son, he is, uh, whether Moses were to proclaim his Egyptian culture or his Hebrew nationality, both of them included circumcision. It, it was done at different times and for different reasons, but they both included circumcision. So the question comes up, why, why wasn't Gershom or Eliezer circumcised? I don't know. I really don't. It's, it's one of those things that, that I, uh, I'm kind of interested in knowing just because I love the idea of getting some backstory. But it's also one of those times that I need to acknowledge that, that God didn't think or want this to be the focus. Uh, and didn't need me to focus on that part of the story to understand the purpose of this passage. But, I'll, I'll tell you, speculation oftentimes can add to drama. It's a little bit of a tangent, I want to share a story. My nephew, he's an actor uh, in Korea. And he did this movie like 10 years ago, I think it was in 2009, it's called Kwaka uh, Tepyo, um, or something like that. It's, in English, it's uh, Takeoff is the name of the, of the movie. And I remember watching this movie. It's about the Korean national ski jumping team uh, that was in the Olympics a long time. And it had this tag in the front of the movie. It said, based on actual events. And so I remember having a chat with him and talking to him about the movie. He said, good job. And I, and I asked him, so how much of the movie was real since it's based on actual events? And my wife, Suzette, will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what he told me was the names were right. And I think that was basically it. Everything, I, I think whether or not they won at the end, which I won't give you any spoilers in case you ever want to watch it, that part might have been right as well, but everything else, not so much. So, I mean, the lack, they just took a lot of license. And the lack of detail about Moses' son not being circumcised, it leads some to weave a story that's based on actual events to add some flourish to those areas that are interesting, but don't necessarily add to the purpose of the story. Even John Calvin. He did it. An amazing theologian from a long time ago. He, he wrote on the non-circumcision of Moses' son. He said this. He thought that Moses didn't have his son circumcised because Moses wanted to maintain peace with either his father-in-law or his wife. And it could be. It, it makes sense. It sounds reasonable. The thing is, I don't know. Because God doesn't say in this Bible. Again, that's okay because you'll see that it doesn't change the point or the impact of this story. Another question that came up when I was reading through this is, why does Zipporah touch his feet with the foreskin? Because that's kind of weird. So here's Moses and his wife Zipporah. They're traveling to Egypt, and they've got their two boys with them, and suddenly God seeks to kill him. And Zipporah immediately knows why and understands why God is seeking to kill him. And then she circumcises her son, her adult son. Because you got to remember, Moses has now been married to Zipporah for like 40 years. So their sons are not babies anymore. So she circumcises her adult son and then touches his feet, whoever him is, his feet with it. How, how does Zipporah even know that that's what needed to be done? How does she know that she needed to cut off the foreskin of her adult son? And then why touch his feet with it? 
I'm going to say this a lot. I don't know. But the Bible, because the Bible really doesn't tell us. And so I'm not 100% sure, but I, I can imagine a possibility, one possibility. It goes back to this narrative that I gave earlier that's based on actual events. Because if you can imagine this, here's Zipporah and his, her husband, Moses, have a new son, and they're having an argument. Like, I do not want to circumcise. I don't want to mar his body. She didn't want it done. She, she knew it was a big deal to Moses and his people, the Hebrews. She was a Midianite, so it didn't matter to her. Something about maintaining a connection to God, to their God, and, and being the chosen ones. Just, she just didn't want to see her son's body marred in that way. It just seems horrid. And then they're going to go serve this same God in Egypt, to obey this same God in Egypt. The one for whom circumcision plays such an important part of a covenant relationship with this same God. Now the same God is coming to seek to kill him. Now if him is Gershom and him is not circumcised and him is not part of of the covenant people group that will escape killing. And if him is about to die because of this, mama's going to do whatever it takes to save her son. But again, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. It could be that. Then Zipporah touching his feet with the foreskin. I I looked at the original Hebrew word for, for feet to see if maybe that could give me a little bit of explanation. And and it can be translated to something like the leg or the sole of the foot or even the genitals, but it doesn't help me having a different translation for the word because it, it just doesn't make sense. I really don't know why she would touch his feet with a bloody foreskin. And, and, and Moses didn't include that detail in the story. It, it's, it's just weird. Maybe he didn't understand it. I don't know. But thankfully, again, it doesn't change the intent behind this narrative. Let me ask just one last question here. Why does Zipporah call him a bridegroom of blood? And I should explain that this phrase is likely why the majority of scholars understand the hymn to be Moses, because Moses is Zipporah's husband and would have been the only bridegroom around. So the bloody foreskin that assures that their son, whether it's Gershom or Eliezer, is now in a covenant relationship with God, this same blood will now unite Zipporah fully to her husband Moses because the command of God has been fulfilled. Okay? But there's also an interesting thing about that word bridegroom because this word can also be used and translated to mean father-in-law or son-in-law or a relative-in-law or a relative by marriage or a relation by a holy covenant. So if we were to take the broader definition for a moment that's translated into bridegroom, one could read this to say Zipporah is now in a covenant relationship by blood with him, which could make sense if Gershom is who Zipporah is interacting with. But I don't know. Because the Bible ultimately, it doesn't say. This is a... I admit this is a weird passage, and, and to me it brought a lot of questions to the forefront of my mind. But I think it also points to two really important lessons that we can take away. The first one is this. Regardless of whether you believe the hymn to be Moses or Gershom, the sin that needs to be addressed is exactly the same. 
the non-circumcision of the son. And the one who's responsible for that is Moses. So point number one that I want to uh, highlight here is that my disobedience to God can impact others. Who knows why Moses decided to not circumcise his son? Maybe it was to maintain peace. Could be. Maybe it was because he was lazy. Maybe, maybe he was just angry. Angry at God because, and he blamed God for not being able to be the prince of Egypt anymore. He had to live with sheep. Whatever the reason, Moses' disobedience impacted his son. So the question is to you, could it be that is there a disobedience in you to God that, that may not be impacting you alone or those around you? Could your disobedience to God be impacting those that you care about? I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. It says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourself. It's not something Moses did. You see, Moses' disobedience impacted his son. It impacted his entire family. My disobedience to God will impact not only me, but my family, my wife, my parents, my community, Wicker Park. Your disobedience to God could potentially impact those around you. Maybe someone in your life uh, does not know the joy of redemption by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. Maybe your disobedience to God could possibly be impacting those folks in your life. The second point I want to make, and it's the last one here, is that my disobedience, my obedience shows my redemption. It will show my redemption. My obedience to God will cause, cause others around me to possibly say, hey, your redemption showing. You see, this story, regardless of whether the hymn is Moses or Gershom, regardless of whether the son that's not circumcised is Gershom or Eliezer, this story points to the necessity of blood in the act of redemption. This story re represents the gospel story, the story of redemption by God's grace. And it's a foreshadowing of Christ's blood being spilled so ours would not have to be for the sake of redemption. Because it's by God's design from the very beginning that redemption requires blood. I want to work this one out with everyone here. If you uh, turn to Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, this free gift of God was paid for through Christ's blood because the means of salvation as designed by God requires a blood covenant. And the blood that was spilled by Jesus, it satisfies that covenant, that price tag. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, the second half of it reads this. It says, but as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I'll tell you, there are some passages in the Bible that are going to be harder to understand than others. It's going to take time to understand it, to investigate it, to try to get the full context of the passage because we're centuries removed from the original writings. 
but that does not negate the power of the truth that the Bible affords us. Because we can see the gospel, we can see the good news of redemption interlaced throughout the words on these pages, in this book. And the word of God is a light to our feet. So regardless of who the hymn is, regardless of fully understanding the motivation behind Zipporah and how she followed up after she obeyed, I think we can come away with two truths that I'd like you to take away and hopefully will impact your day-to-day. First is this, simply, disobedience to God, it can potentially impact those around you. At the same time, obedience to God will show your redemption.